Well, Aaron and I's first year of marriage was not an easy one, and uh, the blame is on me. I did not make our first year of marriage easy. I had a new job in Washington, D.C., and it was consuming lots of my time. Celebrating uh, my first birthday as a married couple, Aaron went above and beyond to love me, even though I was loving work more than anything else. Un- yes, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, uh, she contacted my boss, this is the chief of staff of the congressman, uh, to see if I could get out of work early on a Friday. And uh, that's bold to contact the chief of staff and ask that. She kidnapped me from work and drove me to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which is not far from Washington, D.C. And she had gotten a a bed and breakfast at a Civil War-themed bed and breakfast, the little inn in Gettysburg. And totally nerdy, which was totally my thing, right? And the next morning, we took a tour of Gettysburg on horseback. If you've ever been on Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, it's amazing. But to do it on horseback is even more amazing, especially in the autumn in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It is gorgeous. In classic terms, we call what Aaron did as wooing. (laughs) Typically, that's something we think about before marriage. But here, my wife wooed me in our marriage, took me away from the loves of the world, drew me closer to herself in the Civil War desires that I loved. She knew me well. You know, we think of wooing typically in romantic relationships. We're going to see in Hosea God is going to do this for his people. He's going to woo them and draw them to himself. Today we're going to see that Israel falls into false loves. But the Lord woos them to show them that he will meet their deepest longings. Have any of you been distracted by false lovers? Maybe you need this word this morning. The Lord would come close to you, to woo you, that you might see that he can meet your deepest needs. Let's look at this together, shall we? Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to take it in sections. It's a doozy, okay? So just be prepared as we look at God's word this morning. It is his word and it is good. So let's start with verses 2 through the beginning of verse 5, and then we'll keep on going as we go through the sermon. I'm going to start with verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I stripped her naked 
And make her as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness. And make her like a parched land. And kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy. Because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. The word of the Lord. For just joining us, welcome to Hosea. <laughs> Hosea is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, the 8th century B.C., and he writes over a 30-year period, a period where Israel goes from a height of power to actual ruin, where Assyria destroys the northern kingdom, Israel. A prophet is God's mouthpiece, a mouthpiece to get the people's attention. Of course, all the prophets are unique, but there is a, a uniqueness in Hosea. For Hosea to understand and for the people to understand what they are doing, that Israel is going after other gods in the sense committing adultery, God has the prophet Hosea marry the woman Gomer, who is also an adulteress, who wanders from her love for her husband to other lovers. They have three children. Possibly some of them don't come from Hosea, but from other lovers of Gomer. The names that they are given define the broken relationship between God and Israel. Jezreel, and also no mercy, and not my people. And we see from the last chapter, we see what Hosea does. Marrying Gomer, having these children, so he gets an experience of what God is experiencing by Israel running to other lovers. And in chapter 2, we are then put into this analogy of adultery. We are put into the analogy of a dysfunctional family. And we're done in a very vivid, poetic form. God is talking as the husband. Israel is the wife. And we see at the very beginning, it says, plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. Here, the children represent children that might still be faithful to God in Israel. That maybe these children would call out to the unfaithful in Israel, don't you see the adultery that you're doing? Don't you see what is happening? You see, the cheating is right before them. And in this poetic form, it makes it very vivid. That between the breasts might be referring to jewelry adorning someone that's a prostitute or trying to go after other lovers. That they wear such things on, their, on them to attract other lovers. 
This is what Israel is doing. Worshiping the Baals. Being a part of Canaanite religion. Religion outside of Israel. Being attracted to other nations. They are adorning themselves with these other idols. Calling lovers to themselves. They don't even hide it. We see here the poetic language is very vivid. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. You have to understand that Baal, the god of the Canaanites, was a fertility god and an agricultural god. And Israel didn't come from an agricultural society when they came into the land, but they ended up adopting it when they came into Israel, these Canaanite religions, because they could be able to call to them for rain. And in Baal worship, they used prostitution and sexual rituals to be able to bring fertility. Also, that the land would produce agriculture. And there was an understanding in Baal worship that the land was Baal's lover. And Baal would spread his seed, the rain, to make the crops grow. And here what is happening is God is showing this. He's saying, I see what you follow. I see how you see the land. I see how you see Baal. And God is saying, this is nothing. I am above all of this. There are no other gods. I am the one that waters the land. I am the one that creates all things. I am the maker of everything. And again, this vivid language is showing that he is above all the things they think will bring them what they need. In the beginning of chapter 2, we are placed in the fickleness of Israel. We are placed in the unsettling situation of a dysfunctional family that's affecting the children. It's affecting, of course, the husband. We see a wife that goes to other lovers. It doesn't seem like Israel is anchored to anything. And we'll see as we go through this passage, we get into the mind of this wife, Israel, and what she says and what she tries to do in this unsettling position. And then we see as Israel talks about what she does, we see what God does to woo her back to himself. Well, it's homecoming time, right? Maybe I should take you back to those moments of homecoming season, right? Were those unsettling times for any of us? No, nice, nice. <laughs> I mean, maybe some of us wonder, who's going to ask me to homecoming? Is someone going to call me? The unsettling times of teenager angst, right? Maybe some of you feel unsteady about our current age. Maybe that angst is in your life. 
What am I to do with my kids? What relationship should I be in? What job will bring me security? And we run to lovers that might give us answers. And we see that there is one lover that is faithful and true and will deliver, that is asking us to the dance, that is calling to us and saying, I am here and I am faithful and I am good. Will you pick up the phone? Will you come with me? Move over in this unsteadiness, this dysfunction, and I will bring security and peace. Well, let's see what Israel says to this, shall we? Second part of verse 5. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And then God says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. You see, Israel is in turmoil. Opposing nations are increasing in power, Judah and Syria and Egypt and Assyria. And they are wondering who should they side with? What lovers should they take? Also, their lovers are the pagan gods. Who can we worship in our festivals? And who can we go to in our temples? And who can we prostitute ourselves out to so that we can keep our current pace of life? And this is what God says to this. I will hedge you in. I will not give you those options. You will go try to find them, but you will not be able to find them. You will find, try to find security in your gods and the other nations, but I will not let you. You see, God is trying to take away the idols of Israel. You know, we studied the Ten Commandments this summer, and really this is just hitting on the first commandments. You shall have no other gods. Some of us, again, might say, well, I don't know. I don't worship idols in my age. What are the idols of our age? Money, sex, power, prestige, Tim Keller, a great book, Counterfeit Gods, talks about the modern idols of our age. It's a great compatriot to reading Hosea. And he tells a story about a woman in L.A. Her name is Cynthia Hamill. And Cynthia was around a lot of upcoming actors in Hollywood. And she found this to her friends that found fame. She said this, a minute a celebrity became a celebrity is the minute that he or she became a monster. She lists three Hollywood stars in a book 
And she knows how once they became famous, they just became unreasonable. They became the supreme being in their orb. And she found the wrath and anger that she had was awful. Because under the pressure of fame, character flaws, and the miseries of their life became twice as bad as they were before. I wonder, I wonder if God's care for us is that he doesn't give us exactly what we think we need. That actually his love for us is hedging us in. That we actually aren't able to find the things we think will give us the love we think we need. Or that relationship, that job, that salary, that make me those lovers would make us worse off. Could the grace of God be keeping you in the place you currently are so that you might see a love that is lasting and might not wander from the love that truly will not let you go? Well, it goes on. Then she shall say, meaning Israel, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Well, we might think at the beginning here, this is a good sign. Israel says she's going to go back to her first husband. She's going to go back to God. But here's the thing. She's not returning back to God out of love for God. She's returning back to God because the other lovers disappointed. She didn't get what she wanted. And you see that it's played out further in the passage. It says, Israel fails to see that all the things that have been given to her are from God. you know your Bible well, you know that this is kind of sounding a lot like what Jesus is talking about with the prodigal son in Luke, right? If you know the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son takes the inheritance early from the father, right? Oh, I want my money now. You're not dead, but I'm going to take it now. 
and goes and spends all the money. And then we see the prodigals eating with the pigs because it's all gone. And the prodigal says to himself, why am I doing this? It would be better for me to go and be a servant in my father's house than to eat with the pigs. Still, the prodigal does not understand. The prodigal does not understand the love of the father. And what the father gives and lavishes upon his children. I guess the modern day would be saying to dad and mom, oh, dad, mom, the European college trip didn't work, right? But I guess, I guess I'll come back and stay with you for the summer. As a parent, you might be like, oh, thanks for that. Versus seeing all the things that I have as a child is because of their provision and their care. And they actually want relationship with me. Truth is, some of us think the same way about the church. Some of us have experienced the ways of the world. And we say, well, hedonism didn't work, right? <laughs> the seek for pleasure and success and money and power, it didn't work. I guess I'll do the church thing, the moral life, right? That'll serve me better. That is not an understanding of God's love for you. That he has everything for you. This isn't plan B or plan C. This is actually the way he wants it to be, to be with you. What would it take for Israel to actually want to be with the Lord? For Israel to be with her husband. You see what Israel does. It really sums it up in verse 13. And they forgot me, declares the Lord. I mean, Stephen couldn't have said it better earlier this morning. That we would remember that Israel would remember that they were saved from slavery. That the land they have is because God gave it to them. That God is the creator of the universe and he gives them all things. All they have is from him. You see these festivals and Sabbaths and feasts that they celebrate? Really, it's a mixture between Canaanite religion in Judaism, but these feasts were to celebrate God's provision. Now they're just doing it for their own convenience, for their own glory. And God is saying, if I'm going to get their attention, I'm going to take it away from them. I'm going to take all these things away from them so they might see that everything comes from me. You see this one line in verse 10. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. 
What happens to a culture that doesn't understand or is not thankful for the source of their abundance? It can create atrophy. It can create nihilism. It can create major danger in a culture. This is the point of the service, right, where um, the pastor starts lamenting the dire nature of our culture, right? Is that what I'm supposed to do now? Right? And I'm supposed to be on my soapbox and talk about the, the evils of American culture, right? I don't need to anymore. I mean, I don't even need to say it. I am so intrigued that when I listen to the cultural critics of our age, from the left to the right, what they are saying is going on in our world. Russ Duthot, who writes for the New York Times that he's a little bit more right, conservative, he re recently wrote a book. The book is called The Decadent Society, How We Became Victims of Our Own Success. He writes a whole chapter called Comfortably Numb. And in it, he talks about the high percentage of Americans that are not engaged in the workforce. And this is before COVID. And he was talking to research, researchers about this. And some of the researchers were saying kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, 20% of the reason of people not engaged in the workforce is because of the video game Call of Duty. And then Ross goes on about the statistics of the percentage of Americans under the age of 25 that are on anti-anxiety meds and ADHD meds. Astronomical. And then the percentage of Americans over the age of 40 that are smoking marijuana. Right? Those are nice, typical, conservative arguments, right? And some of you say, oh, course, Dan, typical conservative saying things like that. It's not just the right saying it. I was watching Bill Maher. Oh, God can forgive me. Yes, I was watching Bill Maher. And they, he had two panels on about what is going on with young men in American culture. About how the typical kind of profile of mass shootings is young men. How the racism we see in America is a lot of alienated white young men. And how this is a crisis going on in the United States. And it's amazing how a guy who does not believe in God at all and actually does not like Christians and Christian thinking he says, there is a serious problem going on. They're not attaching themselves to relationships. It's affecting their work. It's affecting them, them getting married or not. It's affecting the huge amount of men that are not going to college. And then he goes on and says, 
we have a problem. Tinder is a problem. The iPhone is a problem. This is someone on the left. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. Pleasure, freedom, quick relationships, they have been uncovered and we see the ugliness that has come into this culture because they do not see that all things come from God and only from Him can they find completeness. God exposes us when we are apart from Him. Our depravity when we are not connected to Him. I don't need to say it. The culture is screaming it. And we see it. How we're losing young men in our culture because they are running after lovers that cannot satisfy. And it has gotten so bad that they don't even know how to go after physical lovers. But instead, they sit in their rooms playing video games, doing marijuana, taking drugs, and then have removed themselves from society. And they are lonely, and they are sad, and they have nowhere to go. We have an answer! As a church, we have an answer. Please hear, please hear me. There is anxiousness and there is depression and there is malaise even if you're a Christian. Those exist. But these positions in our culture of anxiety and depression or malaise, they might be a result of not realizing there is a lover that can bring us the peace that we need. That he is stripping it all from us. That all is left is watching Netflix or being at your home alone and depressed and anxious when God is saying, I'm stripping it all away from you so that you might see there is something more. I know I get passionate, but this is the prophet's. These are the prophets. Let us speak like the prophets in our age. Too many young people are drifting away, committing suicide, are lonely for us to do nothing. There was a wooing of the gospel. The Lord has not let them run to their lovers. The Lord has taken away their comforts. And we see now God comes to them in that place. And he speaks tenderly to them. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall remembered by name no more. And I will make them for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you in me in to, to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Earlier we saw the wilderness was a bad place. But the Lord brings her into the wilderness so that in the wilderness he might recapture her to Israel. So like as they came out of Egypt and into the land and how they saw God's provision, that they would again go back to that love and trust in the Lord, in the place where everything has been taken away. And we see where God will lead them, the Valley of Accor, which was a very negative thing in the book of Joshua, is now a door of hope. That I will answer you and give you and return you back to the land. Of course, talking about the future as Israel returns from Babylon and from Persia and returns back to Israel. I've shared this story with some of you, and it's been over a year, so now I feel like I've processed it enough that I can share it with the church. Uh, when I was in sabbatical, it was moments in the wilderness. As some of you know, I spent three weeks in silence on an island in Washington State. And in day four, maybe it's day four, day five, in a silence of three weeks. Um, the first few days I had been journaling like crazy, thinking about my future in this church, what strategies I was going to in implement, what my job, what I was going to do with my job outside of sabbatical. I had so many amazing plans. But then I realized after all my plans had been made in my first four or five days, that I had two more weeks of being in silence and three more months of a sabbatical. That's a pretty hard place to be when you realize you can't run to your lovers at all and they're gone. The church still goes on without me. My desire for work and success and money, here I am alone in a cabin in Washington Island. And all I am stuck with is myself. So I thought. Oh, how the Lord woos us. Tenderly. Lovingly. In the wilderness. 
how he spoke to me and said, I love you. I'm enough. You can let all these things go. And you can live free. The Lord is wanting to lead Israel to that place. That on their lips would be his name. That they might see with him there will be new life and new creation as he lists here going back to creation. That with him there will be betrothal. There will be union with him. And that when you are united with God, there will be righteousness and justice and steadfast love. And that you might know the Lord. And here, the word for know is not simply knowledge. In fact, it's the idea of intimacy. That you will be intimately connected with the Lord. A relationship where he cares for you and knows you and loves you. It's amazing how he uses the word betrothed over and over again three times. Earlier I made the crazy statement to all of you that we are all whores. But you know what he makes more clearly here? That we are all betrothed. We are all brides of Christ. That's the image that he wants to give us. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, a lot of people were really frustrated that when he was around his disciples, they feasted. What? Why? You're feasting during the Sabbath? You're, you're not fasting? You're eating, you're drinking, you're enjoying it. And what did Christ say? Why should people fast when the bridegroom is here? Here, Do you know what Jesus was saying about himself? That he was the husband. He was the bridegroom. 800 years later, Jesus is fulfilling what was read, what was said in Hosea. I am your lover. These disciples that I'm around, they are my bride. Some of you might be hearing this message of the good news of the gospel, Christianity, and say, man, Dan, that's great. What works for you, awesome. I'm glad you had that experience three weeks alone. Awesome. You do you. I have my lovers, you have yours. Here's the difference. This lover is real. He walked on this earth. He dwelt among us. 
He was stripped naked. He was in the wilderness. He did all those things that we deserve to woo us to himself that we might see here is one that has given his life for us that we might have life eternal. This is not some foreign God. This is not some ethereal thing. This isn't some philosophical thinking. This is real. This is a husband that has come to earth and called you by name. That you would be wooed by him. And you would know that you can find satisfaction in him. The creator of the universe is calling to you and telling you to put down your other lovers and to return back to him. And here it is. Here is his love that he has poured out among us. Maybe you should be like a bride. You should stand up and come down the aisle. And you should know him intimately. You should take him into your life and know he will satisfy.